0: Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sadnikar, and we're starting this episode a little differently um, based on the suggestion from super producer Cole Weinman. I uh, wanted to give you some context about the episode you're going to listen to. It's one of the longest conversations we've had with anybody. So it's going to be broken up into two parts and this came about, this podcast is unique for several different reasons. Um, one it's the first one I've done, uh, with super producer Cole in the room, which was a great experience. Uh, actually kind of needed and wanted him there and I'll explain why in a minute. It, involves a bunch, uh, of people involved with PTSD from the military. Um, and this episode started out as an idea to just go talk to my friend, Victor, as most of these episodes do, and just have a conversation. And from that genesis of that idea, it went from, just a a one-on-one conversation to, I would say almost a panel discussion with people that are involved as veterans with PTSD. We had a uh, clinical psychologist there, uh, a doctor from the VA, documentary filmmaker, some people that uh, are involved with helping vets recover. And it went from that... And we actually recorded this at the top of the uh, clock tower in uh, downtown Denver. And it went for me personally from being all, all these podcasts are important. Um, but this one definitely had some gravity and some different feel to it. And We went into this as this group thinking that if one person heard this and knew how to better relate to someone with PTSD or there was somebody that was struggling with it that heard this and we reached one person, then this was all worthwhile. So it was very humbling. Uh, it was an honor to talk to everybody in this room and it was very thankful that they had agreed to open up and take the time. So with that, um, yeah, I I don't, I'm not going to say, I hope you enjoy it, but I would appreciate you listening and sharing this if you found it impactful. Thank you very much.
1: I think that's one of the single greatest things that actually comes from combat. People, look, we found say this, and that is compassion—not sympathy, but compassion and the willingness to actually listen and discover more. It can go the other way too, but on the whole, I've noticed compassion is one of the biggest gifts, if you can say that, that come from combat.
0: So one of the one of the threads I'm hearing from about everybody is the isolation on return and the removal of yourself from a a very indoctrinated culture that's also a support system. And I guess my question for the group is that is the PTSD manifested by the isolation and the removal of your brothers have their back and you separate it out they could if and I'm just um, designing something that if you're um, stateside return you were in a unit with other individuals would that be made easier rather than just taking a play and home is well, the isolation is the worst
2: I did that I came home I got to uh, Travis Air Force Base at two o'clock in the morning. At six o'clock, I was standing outside Oakland Army Base waiting for my uncle to pick me up. I spent the night, and the next day I
1: was home at the foothills of the Sierras. Um, you know, and there was no there was no transition. I
2: mean, I, one day I was wearing a uniform, the next day I was in blue jeans. Um, I, 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 quick. I was. I mean, it was just that quick. I mean, I got here one day. And that night, I'm out of the army and I'm home the following day, uh, it, was a, it was a, I was just so fed up to hear, you know, but I had no place to put it. Now, I think that was the biggest thing, is it was not a, I think there needs to be a transition when you come back from combat. Um, deployment, whatever it is, that you need to time. It. it needs to be a month, six weeks, three months, whatever it is, that they need to set up and say, you don't get out until you've gone through this process. And I mean, this process could be part of what we're doing here. Uh, slowly moving out, I mean, a place would be great to do that process before it's it's right in the city. It's integrated in the city. It's so open post. You can come and go as you please. Uh, that, that kind of thing is like, you know, we want you here at low call. We want you to learn for breakfast. We want you here for lunch. But you've got to the whole post. If you need to go off post and, you know, do something, you can do it. Um, I think we've just got to get caught in our cycles.
1: Yeah, you know, and we were caught in the cycles. It was like you got back, you go home. Did you perchance do because I hear I've heard this a lot from those coming back and um, and that is did you guys do the thing where you get home like two o'clock in the morning you're doing a former check around the neighborhood? Can
3: we do, can we check? So IEDs were huge for me. Um, everything was a potential IED. I actually I lived in Burlington, Washington. There are a lot of Navy posts there. I actually called dispatch because there was a burnt out car alongside the road and they left it there overnight. Oh. I called dispatch and I said, you need to get rid of that. They're like, uh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, trust me, you need to get rid of it you know where i come from that's bad um and i did look at the bridges every time i went through them. any trash any garbage i can
1: find a person who's been in iraq clearing two buildings if they'll come out of the building and stop just inside that door yes and then look up and they'll escape yeah and they just they do it automatically. Or who was it? Someone was telling us about, oh, so one of my girls talked about, she was at by an AD. She talks about when you're driving down the road with her, she does not look at the road. She looks at you and talks the entire time. She cannot look at the side of the road. She can do it now, but when she first came back, and we had guys getting pulled over because they came to a bridge what they do, they move to the center
3: line away from those edges. Start to. Yep. Yeah, and I know my my soldiers did the same thing. Yeah. We were the first platoon to go look for IDs, and we found them the first day there four um, and we didn't have all the toys that our, our administration told them publicly. we were still looking with titanium rods and fiberglass rods, and street stabbing those kids. So you're on your belly looking for? Them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. So that's how we found everything. We found it because the blades of grass were turned just slightly from the other blades of grass that were next to it. And so we knew something was up and we needed to look. Or something in one of my soldiers, they would say...
1: Something's not right here, sir. So, I, go for it, man. Because
3: I'm, I am not the person with the street savvy here. <laughs> you know. Tell, you know. If you figure out what's bothering you, we will we will address that.
1: So, how many years now have you been home? I was
3: two thousand three, two thousand four. Okay.
1: So, how about now?
3: Now, I don't worry about that stuff so much, now. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, the initial stage, I'm not sure um, that a couple of weeks or a couple of months um, right off the bat would be, I mean, I think that intervention is critical, and, uh, but I'm not, I'm not trained in this either, but, um, when I came back, my friend had a me where my house, was. I had no idea what that was. That was not information I needed when I was in the country. Um, but um, that also helped me, if you will, segregate what I needed to focus focus on. Um, and then,
4: you know. so I'll say, I mean, when my unit returned in 2010 from Afghanistan, they were kind of you know, full-blown into the yellow-ribbon-type programming and whatnot. We demobilized in Fort Lewis and Washington coming back, and our unit was spread out from different... Our unit was technically from Wisconsin at the time, but we uh, had cross-leveled some of these soldiers from different units that everyone was going to be going in a different direction once we spread out. And I'll say that even though we had this Kind of check in system, uh, a lot of it felt really burdensome. And even though there, there are people showing support to say, how are you doing? Can we check in with you? do some medical check ins? Can we kill you with a PowerPoint? You know,
1: all this kind of stuff. <laughs> 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 uh, oh my God, the bullets didn't kill me. Stop that. Ever. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> our, main, our main focus was. Can we just get out of here and go home? Yeah. You know, can we get back to you know, our lives in some way and kind of get out of the process. In some ways it felt, you know, like I'm I'm happy that we were able to check in and turn our gear in and have people there to kind of greet. And at the same time, I think it was disconnected from an experience distant from us that we wanted to go home. And they were saying, no, no, you know, if you, you know, and, and in fact, I think it was, the message was, don't let anything be wrong to us because if you, let's say you took a survey, came back. And uh, so uh, for example, like some of the ID explosions that we experienced, um, like I had some like ringing in my ears and tinnitus and, and like some hearing loss. And so going down through the questionnaire, when we we're going through the hearing check on upon return, uh, mine like flagged as needing to do a further evaluation. And so that meant, I had to stay longer in going through this evaluation process because it's that quickly. Exactly. Right. And so suddenly you're going through all these different questionnaires and processes and saying, I mean, I'm, even if it's not okay, I'm going to say it is because I'd like to go home. I knew some folks who had to stay an extra several weeks, you know, waiting on appointments and different things like that, which is great, no doubt. But, you know, the services they can offer and the message to people is it should be fine because you want to go home, like that's where the priority is at. So, you know, I think that it's kind of kind of a, a bit of a catch twenty two, because you want to catch people as they're coming through and offer that support, and you know, if you're not connected to their to the experience of what people are actually. Maybe just start before you. Leave.
1: Yeah.
4: Yeah. So, you know, when I
5: when I retired, um, actually before I retired from twenty four years of service, which I can't believe really looking back that I did that, but um, I actually found my next job before I had left the military and. And probably on a subconscious level, you know, I wanted to get back to. And I was doing, I was doing military contracting. I signed up to do military contracting, and um, I had felt since the last few years of my military career, I had not seen combat and so many of my friends had continued to go back that I needed to do more. So, and, and I told that to the people closest to me, I said, you know, I have to go back. I have to keep doing this. Um, my friends are doing this. These, my, the people in my unit that I left are still doing this. So I have to go back. And when I went back to do contracting work, I was back with people who I knew from my days in service from 10, 15 years before. It was actually kind of a—I mean, it was a—it was a super dysfunctional reunion. And, and you know, and, but the thing is, you know, that—that that was like you said. There's three normals. There's the normal before you join the military. Then there's the normal kind of when you're in the military and you're combat. And then there's a. The, the new normal when you get out which is which is shocking mm-hmm. but um, I was comfortable there so I think it's probably a lot like uh, an abusive uh, or, or you know women in an abusive marriage that stay because they learn that that's, that's kind of what they're used to they're used to it and I think if they know it's dysfunctional maybe on some level maybe on many levels and I, I don't know if, could you add something to that but I, I mean I think that's it's, 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 it's a similar syndrome, for particularly combat veterans who may have, well, they experienced anything, well, anything, any of us who've experienced anything intense, you, I think there's a, you,
4: you feel good there.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. In, in a screwed up way. Yeah. Please accept <laughs> that. I mean, some, some people have referred that to, to as a trauma bonding, and uh, so, you know, take for example. I was saying earlier that you know, the genius of the military and being a war machine is that they, you know, there's a dehumanization process to build everyone up together. But so, for example, right when you're in basic training, um, I think this might speak to kind of your point a little bit. When you get in when you get in trouble, right? When someone does something you're not supposed to do, uh, you don't do pushups, everybody else does pushups, right? (laughs) And so there's already uh, a guilt that's laid in that, you know, you're both culpable and responsible for the people around you. And so I think, you know, when people, you know, get out or come back. And, uh, the genius of that process is also the Achilles feel in that for people later, which is that when you get out, I think there's a pull to feel like I, I could be doing more, right? Like I've been responsible for these people for so long. How do I just disconnect from that without feeling, you know, as though I'm not still or shouldn't still be in that process with people. And, you know, you know, it's a great, um, I think a great feeling to be a part of a unit where you're supported by your brothers and sisters and have that connection. And, and I also wonder if sometimes that gives the message that there's not going to be anybody else who can understand it then. You know, and that you know, who 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 else can I sort of go to uh, around this? Because you know, this person hasn't you know experienced combat, or and I've seen that separation. I think with some folks who have you know not worn that you know right side patch, you know, having not deployed, feeling this disconnect from people in service who have,
3: and it's an interesting kind of. Uh, of dichotomy to get set up. So, so in our society, we have a, a, a strong push now that I think is exemplifying uh, hopefully, and it's about tolerance, right? Um, I've actually had a talk with um, the top boss of where I work about that um, because that was, if you will, that we needed, we needed to get better tolerance. So I went to front this individual in their office and he said, so that means we're going to be tolerant of the former Marine as we are the flower pusher, right? Well, no. I said, it has to, we have to allow the former Marine all the way through the people who would prefer not to have a, a, um, a kirk word ever spoken within the earshot. Uh, we have to cover that whole range, because this is who's in our society. This is who our neighbors are, this is who our coworkers. are. I think that's one of the biggest things, this is your neighbor. Yeah. And, and I think that lack of tolerance, if you will, for what we bring back with us, um, it, it is really hard for some people. Um, and I've gone to bat, if you will, for former Marines who who worked really hard. They, you know, they live right here, and society is over by Mark's elbow. And they worked really hard to get as close as they could without losing themselves. And nobody around would they would step towards him. and and that's and then so we lost a good coworker who really had a heart, uh, strong fervor, if you will, to contribute. And it's the same thing; they're they're trained to contribute, so they always were looking for ways to contribute in ways uh, in a manner that other people hadn't thought of, and they were a janitor.
1: That's pretty interesting to say that because I just ran this conversation. Um, one of my guys called me up two weeks ago. <laughs> He's um, tired of LSF and working in the civilian population. And his question to me is, He's having problems with a female boss. And so he goes, Hey, I don't get it. And what's the problem? He goes, If I knew someone was better than me in my team, I want to go hang out with that dude because I'm going to improve myself. That's not what's happening here. I go, no. know. What's happening here is instead of that same thing where you know if you put yourself next to someone who's better than you, you're going to improve your own game. You're a threat. It's a totally different mindset. And I think that's one of the hardest things in the workforce is for civilians to understand this person wants to hang out with you because they actually think you're better, that's a hell of a compliment. And they want to work towards team and go up. Mm -hmm. But if you have the civilians who don't get that and see that as a threat, that person's blocked. And he's being blocked away. He's not even nobody's being blocked. Here. I call it the society blockade. Here. It's a hard thing to work around it, or to find someone who can say, "All right, I got some skills. I want to pass this on."
4: Well, and interesting to mention the difference in identities that people experience, because I think on the civilian side, and I don't know, you know, for those of you who. You know, search, You know, that, that I've heard from some folks sometimes. Uh, I hear this from like colleagues and therapists or students. You know, who want to go to feel more veterans and they're they have a big fear around their ability to understand and be a part of that. As though if I'm not part of the culture, then how am I going to be helpful? You know, that I'm going to feel this big disconnect and you know separation from them. So I think you know it's interesting that you know veterans and service members often feel this disconnect and alienation from other people because I maybe I don't know how to. Shoot Share my experience in a way, or I don't know how to make these people get it right. You, you know, you haven't had to drive along the sandy deserts of Iraq or Afghanistan. you You haven't had these intense experiences. But on the other side of that, I think civilians as well at times often feel very inadequate to even engage in that process because you know there's a sense of like, how can I even? How can I ever? understand you know how can I ever be a part of that and you know Matt, to answer to bring it back to your question a little bit in asking like what can people do you know what's helpful in this process um, I was reflecting on you know a personal experience of this was not during wartime per se but you know as I mentioned earlier uh, you know my unit was set during our pre-mobilization and Fort Hood, and we uh, you know experienced this you know Mass shooting that occurred there on the base of the Hood, uh, like three weeks before we were supposed to deploy, and in the aftermath, uh, we there were essentially sort of. I mean, there were services available, but not really. You know, they said you can go see the chapel between nine and three if you want. He'll be there to see you. And we we're like, well, we're going to be in training all day, so I don't really know how that's going to happen. And so there was kind of this uh, process of like how are we going how we to deal with the big trauma that's occurred? And then, you know, deploy three weeks later. Well, one of the things that really stuck out in my experience that I think was probably the basis of a lot of transforming some of that experience was you know located in male and female barracks next to one another one night I think a couple days after that happened we got together took a bunch of mattresses from the bunks, put them down on the floor in one of the bays and then a full bird colonel ordered pizza for all of us and then we all got together sat down on the floor with these mattresses and reminisced just talked about you know shop the shit you know whatever was coming up for us at the time and it was sort of like as you mentioning earlier, like there's like no rank here, there's no, you know, hierarchy or separation between us. Like, let's just put it out there in the best way we can. And that process, I think of creating this dwelling space where the experience can be held in a certain way, it can be held and not you know, pathologized or pushed away created this like strong human connection and so that's kind of the experience and basis that I try to speak from when I'm talking to people who maybe haven't been in the military is like there's a, there's something really incredible that you can offer and that's your presence. And, you know, I, would, um, I was
5: thinking about my experience when I got out and took a full year uh, after returning from contract work. To really just lose my shit, and um, I was unraveling. I actually was telling those closest to me, well, um, my girlfriend at the time, that, that I'm, I, I actually told her, I'm like, there's something wrong. I don't know what it is, and and I think she was doing the best she could. Um,
1: her response often was, go to school, go
5: to college. and I just said I I just can't I just there's something wrong and college is not my thing it's just not my thing Um, another one is you know another suggestion was well just get a job and um, and I'm like well a job to me isn't The jobs that I've done up till now for the last 24 years and all the work that I've done till this point, there's nothing in the civilian world that makes me feel like I'm doing anything important. Nothing. There was nothing. Absolutely nothing. And earlier on, I mentioned, you know, finding joy counts. And so um, I had to be okay. I had to find value and joy. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know how to value joy. I really didn't, and I didn't know how to value anything unless I was saving saving someone's life. Um, I didn't know how to value um, myself unless I was in the role of a protector. Um, that's all I knew. So for me, getting out, there there was nothing for me to do. I mean. Maybe a SWAT team, I don't know, you know, uh, maybe going to rough up some cartel dudes or something, I don't know, but, um, you know, I mean, that's, that's illegal, you know, I didn't want to break the law, so, you know, but, um, you know, we're, we're, so what society thinks is good for us, um, the, the normal path, society's normal for many of us going to school, uh, getting a degree like Americans or many of Americans are raised to believe is a good thing, the right thing to do, isn't necessarily our path. And I was an unconventional soldier. I'm an unconventional guy now. It's not going to change. College ain't my thing. Neither is a regular job. So right now, I chop wood and clean my land and give wood to my neighbors and ask if I can cook a meal for them. And... Take care of 20 acres of land. Hang out with wildlife. Take photography. You know, take take pictures. Um, hunt mountain lions every day. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's what I do. But that's you know, it's it's. So I think sometimes maybe you could speak to that. And somebody, anybody, here could speak to that. I think I think what society lays out for us when we return is this conventional, you know, path. It doesn't. It doesn't really work for us after our experience. It, it misses it. What's that? It misses it. Yeah. It might also be
3: unrealistic for us that they, uh, expect people who live in this narrow tube that most of the people we come back to live in. To have that broader understanding that we are, um, I shall say, in a positive way, embellished with through our experiences, however difficult they are. We get to see things that help us see the world in very different ways. We also get to see things that help us understand that what we have here almost 99.9% of it is pure luxury. Mm-hmm. There are people on this planet that do, don't even have that 0.1% within their friends. and it, So it, this is a little bit like the discrimination factor right, that we're talking about, whether it be man, woman, or, or race, or cultural, those sorts of things. Uh,
1: almost the engagement of, hey, this, is, this
3: doesn't work for me. Here's where I'm coming from and extending out. And then almost helping the people around those soldiers, and this was a big deal for my soldiers because their families didn't get it. Um, you need to reach back and try to learn a little something about that because this is a brand new relationship. Oh, it's no. something I actually tell guys. I actually ran into a guy
1: I suspect. He's a group guy over Memorial Weekend and gave me information to go fly fishing. And he said, well, I'm to pay you. I said, no, you're not going to pay me. No, I'm going to pay you. I said, tell you what. There's two ways you can pay me. One, you can come fly fishing with me and tell me a story about boot camp everybody's got that guy. But there's a second one that's more important. I'll teach you this, you reach back to someone else. And that's an excellent way for guys to transfer home. And Victor and I have been witness to guys reaching back and they were struggling, but they're able to share their experience and pull pull the next one forward, pull the next one forward, pull the next one forward. One time.
0: Well, to your point, Trey, just being present, and you know, one of the goals we laid out for this conversation was to have something that somebody could talk to their coworker or their neighbor, have something to do, and. If I may ask you actually to retell the, the butt dial story. Oh, <laughs> because uh, it had, uh, unbeknownst to me until last Thursday, that such an impact on me and I called call midnight just to share that experience. And not because it involves me, but because it was just a very simple, tangible example. I think what Trey is saying about, um, what you could do, if
5: you're okay with that. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, so this was in September of 2013, so, um, I had just really started going down tubes hard, and I was in therapy, and I was suicidal at the time. I was going to sleep every night with several loaded guns, and, um, Actually, one of the things at the time that prevented me from pulling the trigger perhaps may have been that I saw failed a suicide attempts in my special forces medical course. They had that had those slides in front of us, and I didn't want to be the guy with a hamburger face um, living you know living with a hamburger face anyway. But I did think about this, and I was just driving around town um, aimlessly. Uh, <clears throat> day, night, and drinking. I got to a point where I probably was drinking two dozen drinks a day, and um, I was right across the street from the ale house by my butt here, here in downtown Denver, and it was dark, and you picked up, and I just basically... You know, we, we really didn't talk about much uh, that I remember, I just remember that I was rambling, kind of like I am now and uh, um, but it was meaningful uh, I did share with you that I was having a hard time that I'd just gone through a really tough breakup and um, and when you lose it when, when you're, ex- you're kind of experiencing the whole PTSD thing and you're falling apart and then you also lose the person that you think is closest to you uh, or that you that you feel you know well your relationship right um, it's a it's a really dark place to be and you you listened i think you actually suggested a couple of book titles for me that books that you had read in hard times um i didn't write them down <laughs> but. <no. laughs> I did you know, I mean, I, I was just, I was that much of a mess. I just really, you know, but I appreciated it. Um, at the time, I remembered what they were. I don't remember them now. Um, but you just listening and responding, not judging, trying to not, you weren't, you weren't getting down in the hole with me so you weren't being sympathetic you were being empathetic you were and you were just listening and that was one of many nights that i was thinking about suicide and that conversation and having someone at that point i mean we still don't know each other really well I mean, not as well as I know perhaps Peggy Sue, but we know each other much better now than we did then. And I definitely can have considered you a, a friend before that. But like, I just, I felt like I was safe. And in sharing whatever was on my mind with you and having. That feeling of being safe—it's—it's something that, and actually being cared for instead of the one protecting or caring for somebody else when I needed help because you were just there. I, I don't know. And it was just, that was so profound for me. It, it carried me for a few more days, just like, you know, and, and some conversations i had with Eddie Sue have carried me for a few more days, with Michael, just a few more days. And, and you know, so that conversation I had with you was, in a very real way, kind of my life preserver and it kept me afloat for just a few more days. And I was, I was looking for, I was reaching out madly, I was, I was just, you know, I, I was going under the water, I was, I was, you know, I was gulping water at that point I felt like I was drowning and so that was a very real lifesaver for sure um, but again it's it's listening it's compassion it's not judging you didn't judge um, and and I'm sure that
4: was absolutely batshit crazy out of my mind um, but you didn't judge well, if I can piggyback on that uh, just really quickly I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back around. Yeah, no, uh, you know, a lot of the folks, folks that I really like working with are folks who've been diagnosed with some sort of psychosis, you know, or schizophrenia, that sort of thing. And you know, sort of hallmark, you know, diagnostic feature being like this break with reality. But in my experience, I and mean, this is just my bias, but. In working with people, rather than trying to look for these differences, you know, look for for symptoms, look for categories we can put in, look for uh, symptom reduction, that sort of thing. Like those things may have their place, but usually what's happened is that someone's saying something that's sort of the unsayable thing, right? But it's been translated into a symbol that the rest of us don't really get that we're not really able to sort of make sense of it's interesting that the longer you sit with that right with people and get to know them and are part of that process it starts to make sense and um Maybe I'm becoming crazy myself. Perhaps, but, <laughs> um, but you know, for example, like um, you know, everything's de-identified, you know, whatnot. But you know, just as a broad example, you know, sometimes folks I work with uh, are so you know paranoid that they you know feel like you know people are following them or cameras are watching them. You know, and uh, there's this like emotion, this intense fear, you know, that comes with that. And so, worked with someone uh, for a while who would scream and sing so loudly. Uh, other people were just like, shut up, you know, like, can you just stop singing, you know? And at one point I, as I talked to him about it, uh, it kind of came to light that there was just this intense fear of like being watched all the time. And the only thing this person could do was to sing so loudly that they could forget about it for a second. And in that moment right there, I thought like everything changed for me. And, you know, even though I think for me, I was like, oh, this is, you know, like kind of bothersome. This is happening. Uh, Everything kind of changed in that moment in terms of like how we related to one another. And it was just instant. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, not a problem anymore. Like all annoyance went out the window at that point. And so in, I, I don't see that process as too much different from what we're kind of talking about beyond the language of how it's symbolically represented, you know. So we're talking about that process. You know, I think for I think for people who don't have the experience, uh, we go this way of you know, acknowledging how scary that is both for not just us as veterans, you know, but who have had the experiences, but also for the people trying to, to lean into that. You know, that's entering a world where we're acknowledging that it's not always safe and and that kind of violates a lot of things that we think about the world, I think. And and, and that, I think, could be a really scary process for people trying to reach into that. And yet, that vulnerability, that presence, that willingness to lean in I think creates this um, this connectedness you know that you know as you're talking about victories can be so life-saving because you have somebody who's willing to enter into that space and just show up you don't need to know what it's like um, and you can't but yet your willingness to step into that experience to, uh, to sort of, you know, to paraphrase that old, like, Nietzsche quote, right, to, like, stare into the abyss together, which I think requires something of the person who's there, right, to, like, turn into that, that's pretty... I don't know how loudly I can cuss here but that's pretty fucking scary and you mean, know got <laughs> something you learn. okay fair <laughs> enough yeah so,
1: and but I and I think
4: that for the person you know who's who gets to experience that you know as you're talking about like there's such a Uh, such a power in that that someone's willing to do that with you and lean into that with you that like forget throwing the life raft into the water right this person dove in and swam over with the life raft and said let's get on together right and that takes us from this sense of like disconnect and loneliness to this like shared humanity that, yeah, just, I, I think, can't be understated.
5: Well, I, I, I always remember this from my, uh, in SEER training, that's survival, escape resistance evasion. So, folks who are in high-risk captured, HRC, uh, high-risk captured jobs in the military go through that. And one of the things that prisoners of war, uh, who came to speak to us... Um, about their experiences, as you now part of this training evolution shared with us. One of them said, "Insulate, don't isolate." You, you know, it's, you just people. People need contact. People need to be heard. They need to be seen. And you know, um, and actually, one of my therapists at the vet center um former service member, she's a Navy officer now now a social worker. She introduced me to Renee Brown and and uh, oh, oh. and the the her talk about shame and and I remember you know I was isolated myself but I I didn't know. I just didn't know how to get through it. So I was counting on people like you, Matt. You know, just being there, and not even trying to make sense of what I was saying or what I was feeling. You just listened, but you were insulating me at that moment. Um, I didn't feel isolated. Um, and that's a lifesaver. Um, and then after I finally, I, I, I refused, I think, um, to watch a talk called Shame. I'm like, Shame? Are you kidding me? I would be ashamed of? Well, I watched it, and then I started to learn what it meant to be vulnerable. And um, but we're not taught to be vulnerable.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: We don't accept that. We don't we don't accept
1: that
2: from each other. It's a paradigm we can go up with. It's
1: pushed you know, do that away. It's it's part of a culture. Especially the military. And yet, being vulnerable is one of the things that will bring you closer to anything else and quickly.
3: But that isn't part of what we're talking about, society. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's very real. And I think that's much different, I think, now than it was a generation or two ago as well. I think um, perhaps the youngsters always want, but they're reaching out in ways, if you will, through vulnerable spaces. And then they're blocking in new ways, if you will,
1: there we go. so But that's, that's a big one. And also finding new hiding places, of those. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things I found most interesting about working with actually, so, yeah, I've always felt very blessed to know Victor and know him for so long, too. We're getting old. <laughs> okay. What was that? <laughs> But one of the things I've noticed is that like victory your generation, you guys tend to talk, but the younger generation, if you don't speak that language, like, right. so working with 501 through C's and stuff, you quickly learn which people can speak the language and which ones can't. Yep. I'll break through barriers faster than the guys will, even being a woman, which is unheard of, because... I've learned about their language. I've learned about what their experience was, what, what their triggers are, what those things were. We've talked about the things that nobody talks about. We've talked about the porn addiction that nobody talks about. we talked about the gaming addiction that nobody talks about. We talk about the effects on the families. We talk about the six months, honeymoon's over phase that happens after coming home. We've had those conversations. But it's really interesting knowing what the newer hiding places are. And I have to say that the gaming the online corner definitely two of the untalked-about hiding places. So they don't have to be vulnerable. They can check out.
3: So it's interesting. That sounds like it links a little bit to what we were talking about earlier. And that um, a lot of people, it's vulnerable for them to step in that space, but they have no idea what they're going to expect. They, they don't know what the language is, and they're afraid that's going to prevent them from help, helping to it. Uh, And then they have their own, if you will, refusal to be vulnerable. um, Weak in their own ways based on their own experiences. And so um, I think when we do find people who do that, if we can get people who understand that vulnerability the people who surround you know, we don't deploy by ourselves, our entire family deploys with us, only they don't have the experiences in which to hang their fears too. Well,
1: they don't understand the sensory overload you guys go with adapting back
3: home, right? Yep, yeah. yeah. and it confuses them, and that becomes a fear of their own. But if we have enough of us who've made, made a little leap to the other side of the, the troll bridge, if you will, sure. um, to help them understand what's coming and help them understand. And listen, you, without judgment, just say, just be there. Um, then, then I think maybe that communication pattern starts to improve. And it doesn't matter if they're eighteen or if they're ninety. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, well, and you, you know, there used to
4: be this old metaphor that they'd use, uh, or that I learned in the Army mental health training I went to, of putting it in the black box, the metaphorical black box, pouring your trauma into this black box that, um, you know, basically, you know, when you're in combat, you know, there may not be time to sort of process all this stuff that's coming up, you know, maybe you've witnessed something really terrible, you can't process it. So maybe you you pour it into this metaphorical box and say, we're going to put that away and then I'll deal with this later. You can see care at the VA when you get home, and whatnot. And then uh, it was sort of further attended to by saying, uh, you know, you know, maybe the way that you talk about uh, your trauma is not on like a movie rating scale, and 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 it's like concentric circles of like how intense it might get. So you know, at the edge, you'd say like, well, maybe you tell the PG stuff. Maybe that's what you can tell to society. You know, that's the stuff that you can share. But then there's the PG-13 that maybe you can share with your family or your you know your spouse or whatnot. But then that R-rated stuff is maybe something you say for just the people that you're there with. And I get the rationale behind that. And but I think I don't know what I don't know if it's a cause or maybe more of an expression of how we think that people are going to respond to that type of content. You know, that like, oh, if you tell them the R rated stuff, people are going to back away and say, what? You know, I can't go there with you. Um, well, and oftentimes they do back Exactly.
5: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
4: You even come close to R. Right.
5: You get into PG 13 and people start freaking
1: out. out. You get to R and then you get beyond R, that's a whole other level. Yeah. It. Right. And 217. And yeah. rated, right. Well, I'm <laughs> yeah. curious about
3: your thoughts on this, Mark, because. If you experienced two generations of combatants, right, and, and you, uh, I sounded like maybe you and your father responded very differently, um, and, and it might have been in this communication, What and what can I tell this group of people safely, and what can I, and I just better keep this in black box, because it's so great, here. Yeah, you
2: Yeah. Know talking about my father um, about a relationship you know what was really weird is my dad really never shared much of his experience for world war II. right and i know for history what my dad did he lost a lot of friends yeah. i mean if you're keeping this airplane running every day and you're servicing it you get to know the crews they show up the pilot comes through and checks everything you know, I think my dad had some very He was never treated, right. and the only way he knew to deal with us was maybe the way he was dealt with as a child. My dad was you know, five, his mother passed away when he was young, uh, was raised by, by a maid, uh, and his father um, you know, I think we don't look far enough back to see what they sh- they have shaped us as human beings today. And we can't change that. But I think we can modify our behavior uh, through therapy uh, or whatever it is. Like I modify my behavior by exercise on my cycling. Uh, there are things my wife has said, like, we'll talk about this. You know, I'll, I'll get off on a and say, you know what? They're loud And I shut up. You know, change the and do something else or just leave. And um, so I, 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 I like have my life back at home or something, something that clears up, you know. Um, you know, I'm still extremely conflicted. It's been 40. China. I left in 1907. Yeah, that's why. 28 years. Yeah, it's been 50 years. Why does it come back and continue to bite me in my ass? Because <laughs> <laughs> you're
1: slightly ahead of it. <laughs> that's a good answer.
2: Yeah, I guess. You know, this is a perpetual question. It's that, you know, I've done all this therapy, I've spent all this time at the VA therapy, I've done all this stuff, and it still jumps up occasionally and bites me in my hands. And so I put my ass in my pen cycle. And work through it. I that's exactly right. You know, and people say, "Aren't you afraid out there?" I say, "Holy shit! We don't know what fucking fear is." <laughs> <laughs> it's yes, sir. The people here do. You know, that's that's the thing. It's it's. I mean, when 107s and 122s are coming in, blowing the shit away, and you're and you're trying to get the bunker, which is probably the safest place to be, but you got to get there first. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, the civilian. I, I think they have no concept of your reality that you lived, and therefore they have difficulty coping with some of your actions, whether intentional or unintentional, mm-hmm. and mostly it's unintentional. You know, it's, go ahead.
5: You know, I can I can speak to that. Like one and I'm sure. Probably every one of us has experienced it to some degree. But when I got home from contracting, and you know, my girlfriend at the time insisted I stay here. She's like, you're not going back overseas to contract, otherwise we're done. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'll stay here. So I, you know, I became a bartender and I tried out. I was going to be a real estate guy. None of that really worked out. And, um, but, but we would, some of these unintended things that we do she was a very social person and and I was before that a very social person and I loved to hang out and party and whatever but then after I retired and after I returned from contract work and started falling apart I started withdrawing and I would go to the opera an art show a party with you know friends um, or friends or whatever and and I would start getting physical symptoms. My stomach would get knotted up, and, and you know, and then my my the, my traps and, and and my neck would get tense, and my shoulders would just start hurting, my whole back would start hurting, um, and I'd start trembling, and and I just simply I didn't know what it was at the time. I really didn't. I was having after
1: one of those, yeah,
5: But I was I was completely redlining. I was totally redlining, and I was overstimulated, and and my my brain was tired, my body was tired, I just was kind of confused, I was irritated. And so I would leave these social functions oftentimes before she would. And then I would be completely fried, pissed off, physically ill, she'd get home, we'd you know, there was a tense moment. I, I would try to keep it inside as long as I could, but then toward the end of our relationship, I started really kind of lashing out. I'd be angry, and I'd be angry for days. Um, and, you know, and I, I would share my disappointment that, you know, we didn't leave earlier or whatever, and and I didn't feel, you know, I don't think she really understood that. I mean, this is a very real, I was experiencing very real physical uh, symptoms, um, although at that point, I didn't know I was dealing with PTSD. I just knew that I felt like shit, and, um, and so that also felt me, or uh, made me feel more alone, because I just, I, I was just like, really? I mean... I'm, I'm, I'm I'm a mess. Um, and you know, that went on and on for a little while and we just grew further and further apart and everything just became more and more tense, more difficult. Um, I don't know, but that was Mark, as you were saying, I mean, that was my unintended, these were, these were very, I didn't know what was going on. My body was just reacting a certain way. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it was a shit show.
1: So it's no. like a year later that you and I talked about. It. Yeah. By that time, I kind of had a clue. That was—it was a sensory overload. It was unintentional consequences. Yeah. You know. But,
5: it, it, I mean, it just destroys. It just right. these these unintentional things and these physical. Uh, symptoms and and the way they manifest, and and then, of course, your brain, absolutely, you just stop being able to communicate. everything in your body starts shutting down and and i realized that it was just simply and i it was ptsd i realized that down the road i was at an art show after i had started therapy and somebody actually and it was at redline actually art redline art um, gallery in and and I was out with a couple of friends and, you know, this is soon after I kind of realized that I was dealing with PTSD and um, and the two friends I went out with said to me, they're like, well, Victor, let us know if you have to go. So they knew what I was dealing with and they're like, okay, just let us know if you're having a hard time. I'm like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get through this. <laughs> and And so bright lights everywhere, crowded room, everyone's dressed up in, you know, dressed the knives and uh, I got my best duds on and I'm sipping on my gin and tonic or whatever and uh, um, at that point I wasn't drinking 24 drinks a day but um, (laughs) anyway and and a woman bumped into me and in that moment my whole body was the first time that I was consciously where, and actually kind of felt like this jolt, this signal, go from my brain down through down to my feet, back up again, to the ends of my hands, back again, into my body. And, And then I immediately felt the physical the, the physical manifestation, basically, of, of PTSD brewing, and then kind of like how it manifests itself in some people, not all people, and um, and I was I was just so happy. I was like, "Holy shit! There it is! Oh my god! I know what this is! I can I can do something about it!" And I turned around, and it was a little old lady. She was probably five feet tall, eighty years old, with her glass of wine, and she's like, "Oh, I'm sorry." <laughs> And, you know, and, and I, of course, when I turned around, I mean, I was, I was really kind of like amped up. And um, I wasn't, you know, I didn't say anything to her and I never, you know, I'd never had a reaction where I kind of lashed out at somebody. But I was like, oh my God, I, I, I had a very, real physical reaction and and this is what it is I'm just like on edge all the time and and that's when I could actually start and now today I can when I feel tension coming to my shoulders I'm like right, check out your environment is there something here that's freaking me out clearly something is registering with with the lizard brain here and and you know and and something is registering with the amygdala here and telling me that there's danger but by- now I got to let the prefrontal cortex do its work and and really look around
2: and say, okay, is there danger here? No, there's not danger here. Shake those shoulders
5: out, you know, loosen up the neck, you know, and, and if I need to, I, I go into a corner. I, I kind of disconnect for a little while and then maybe I go home. Maybe I re-engage, but I'm super conscious of that now. Um, but. Oh my God! It was a, it was a crazy time. It was a crazy time.
3: Man. Looking at the clock, <clears throat> I don't want to be respectful of everybody's time. And it,
0: it, it flew. Um, uh, I don't want this to be the end of this. I think this is just part point five. This is really part one, I just want to thank everybody for it. And. Uh, if there were any closing thoughts from anybody, we're going to go around the table again. Um, but it's been powerful, which is what I hoped for, enlightening. And just, uh, yeah, it, it, I don't really know how to close this. I don't want to close it. I think this is, this is not going to be a, a single conversation, I hope, with this group or, or more veterans or what we can do to reach back, right?